Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Sunday, November 20th, and I am joined, as I always am, by my neighbor, Max. How's it going, my friend? It's truly the little things in life. Uh, not to say the name, because I know you don't like giving any uh, marketing that hasn't been paid for, but an unnamed food delivery service uh, sent me a, we haven't heard from you in a while. Like, here's a $15 coupon. So I had paid like $1.50 to pick up um, some some kind of Chinese noodle dish. It wasn't Uber Eats. Fuck Uber Eats. Uh, truly the little things. How are you doing? I'm doing good, man. Uh, speaking of, I had a vermicelli bowl for the first time last mm. Saturday after I went climbing. And, and I got to say, it slapped. It was really good. Huh. And, and I had it again uh, yesterday evening. Um, not quite as good because it wasn't sit down. It was takeout. Mm. But uh, uh, yeah, definitely found a new favorite uh, or up there in terms of Asian cuisine. I think uh, Vietnamese is where I got it the first time. It was really yeah. good. <clears throat> yeah, it's funny with me and Chinese food. Like my parents are kind of a bit snobby about Chinese food. We never get it. Like they always mm. go Thai which means like I have hardly had Chinese food throughout my life. So whenever I, I do have it, I'm like, it, it'd be like if someone had never had McDonald's. Yep. And, and then they were like, holy shit, like I don't like Big Macs, but I, if you like lettuce and whatever else makes a Big Mac good and you had it for the first time, or like McNuggets, you'd be like, holy shit. And that's kind of what happens every time I have Chinese food. Yep. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't have a ton of Chinese food as well. It was a lot of Thai food in our place. I mean, mm. you can't go wrong with sticky rice. <laughs> that yeah. might be the main staple of our uh, white enjoyment of of Asian food. Oh, come on. There's... The tastes have evolved, but as, as a young child, the sticky rice was, was a top <laughs> choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we're not, we're not here to talk about Asian food, although that was a nice little side tangent. I know we've got some other stuff to talk about before we jump into the sports. Oh, you did take it off the notes there. Why not just throw some news in? Uh, I'm, I wanted to do a deeper dive than I ended up doing, uh, but I don't know if you heard, uh, the U.S. Justice Department has launched an investigation into Ticketmaster Live Nation for uh, monopolistic behavior. Uh, with the Taylor Swift saga ongoing, which I, I like the articles I read didn't say this, but some of my friends were saying like Ticketmaster was buying the tickets, it was selling and then reselling those tickets. So it was like acting as a scalper on its own. And that was like the cherry on top, but it's so long overdue. Like in Montreal, any venue that's less or like bigger than a thousand people can only be um, played by a band if they sell their shit through Ticketmaster. And if that's not a monopoly, I don't know what is. Uh, so really uh, happy to see that. <laughs> it's just good real estate. Uh, no, Ticketmaster, uh, from what I read, also helped establish a lot of the early laws around digital ticket um, retail and, and selling. So they had a big hand in creating the rules that they abide by. So you imagine they know the, the back... Uh, <laughs> minor gray details of, of the playbook and how to maximize their control over what they help create. And 
the poor Taylor Swift fans who are now looking at $95,000 tickets on, on Ticketmaster. And I took a brief once over at, at uh, Ford Field in Detroit because that is only a two-hour drive from London. But we'll have to wait till the Canadian tickets come on sale. And I got to imagine it's going to be a similar story. So not looking forward to to that experience. But it's just gnarly to see all of the folks who are ripping their hair out and having poor experiences trying to get these tickets. Like if you're Taylor Swift, what a feeling, right? Yeah. I mean, she, she called out Ticketmaster for the experience of the fans, but the fact that everyone's clamoring for these tickets, it, it got to make you think maybe you should move your venue to, to the college football stadiums that are a hundred thousand. Cause that'll even sell out. Yeah. Well, it's just, the way rights and stuff work, like like I don't, I don't know everything um, for something that big, but like certain venues, you have to do it through Ticketmaster, um, and and like I imagine a production as big as hers, uh, they're booking lighting people, like stage people, and those people will also be affiliated with Ticketmaster. Like it really is a chimeric kraken with tentacles going all over exerting monopolistic control it is fascinating to see uh like econ 101 concepts coming up like the demand slope that um you know i can't quite work out the textbook out loud in other news trump is back on twitter uh, oh. not tweeting yet but like the second he got reinstated a lot of my followers were just going through his profile and like retweeting old gems and uh someone likened it to uh the rediscovering the lost library of alexandria i'm speechless i don't know where to go with that that wow um i did see that i did see he also almost like turned it down he doesn't want to be back well, on twitter he's because he's trying he... to like promote his own yeah. stick with the thing but i give it like a week before his ego narcissism just needs to be fed by more likes and retweets than he could possibly get on his own mm -hmm. thing but we'll see unbelievable well i guess he's trying to take the place of of twitter in that sense these younger more agile companies trying to slip into niche niches right that yeah. that would be one niche for him another example would be uh with Ticketmaster. you're hoping that there's the the younger competitors like a game time that one's i know is really popular and uh i've seen it used at at venues in the states and in canada so hopefully that's there's got to be another player out there that that can jump in and take that ticket master space like right, Trump's I'll, trying to do with Twitter. I'll play ball with you and get away from Trump and back to Ticketmaster. Yeah. Um, and then but... and then watch if I take game time and I say, well, I wonder what the price of the game time tickets would be at Ford Field this weekend. Go on. <laughs> it's it's not the best transition ever, but I I was trying to get it there. We'll force it across the line. Just like the Buffalo Bills did a couple times on that Sunday. Was nine out of ten. <laughs> As we jump into football fan cave here and, and start the week off, I know we talked about it on Thursday, but the Buffalo Bills Stadium in Orchard Park, Max, I don't know if you saw the photos. No. Six feet of snow. You could not see an inch of the stadium. Uh, very good call to move the game. 
Now, they probably could have played it, but it's more the risk of having people drive in that to and from the stadium. It's just, it's not logistically possible. And so they moved to Detroit and you can tell they're a little bit rusty in the new environment. Get off to a slow start. Cleveland catches them off guard, but they are able to right the ship, make a couple plays and and get a nice solid win to get back in their winning ways and back on track. They still trail the Dolphins in the division just in terms of divisional record, but uh, the Buffalo Bills back in their winning ways and they'll spend a couple days at home before heading back to Detroit to play the Lions on Thanksgiving this Thursday. I'm a Bills fan. Like I maybe just rented a hotel room for the week and I'm getting a two for one. Honestly, not a bad call, especially if you're taking the week off for Thanksgiving because you get Uh, the holiday. yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that's happening. Absolutely sure that's happening. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of the Lions, they're hot. Three wins in a row now for the Detroit Lions. I thought you were going to say on the season. Uh, uh, Four, I think. So (laughs) three or four wins coming in consecutive weeks. But they do beat the now seven and three New York Giants. And... It's, it was an impressive win. Their defense is starting to to coalesce. It was the worst defense in the year in, in the league for many weeks, but uh, they're starting that some of that first round talent that they've accumulated over the last couple of seasons is starting to perform. And Aiden Hutchinson had a great uh, drop back interception. He's now made two in consecutive weeks after picking off Aaron Rodgers the week before. Uh, and and the Lions, yeah, three wins in a row. They're going in hot, uh, hosting the Bills on Thursday, and that should be a fun Thanksgiving game now. I think a high-scoring high affair. We'll move along here to low-scoring affairs on Sunday uh, in New England and in Baltimore. The Patriots win 10-3. So this is like a Big Ten college game. Uh, they win 10-3 on a last-second punt return touchdown. So 3-3 in that game until the final five seconds. The Patriots get a punt return for the touchdown, walk it off, and they are six and four. They jump the Jets to get into the last wild card spot. And the Jets just outside looking in. We could very possibly have four AFC East playoff teams when all, all said and done. It's uh it's a really tough division. And and the Patriots get a big win there. The Jets just, no matter how great their season's going, they can't seem to ever beat the Patriots. And then in Baltimore, uh, 13-3 final against the Carolina Panthers. Obviously, you've been happy with the defense in Baltimore the last couple of weeks, and Lamar Jackson is battling an illness, but uh, not great signs of life there from the offense against the Panthers team that is very much in the decline now in, in the late season. Moving along here, the Washington Commanders. On the other side, of the conference here, the NFC, the East teams are now all above 500 as well. So Eastern teams dominating in the NFL, the commanders now six and five as they beat the Houston Texans and they do it on the back of a really solid defensive performance, two interceptions, one of them for a touchdown. And uh, they're, they're just trying to gain ground here on the giants who drop back. But uh, of course the Cowboys and Eagles reigning supreme at the top of that division, the Eagles uh, almost lost another one almost another big upset down 13 to three at one point, then down 16 to 10. And they do get a touchdown and eke out a one point win against the lowly Indianapolis Colts and head coach, Jeff Saturday. Um, another impressive performance from Saturday, despite being heavy, heavy underdogs. So we'll continue to watch how that story unfolds. And then the Cowboys. Holy. Now we, we talked about Kirk cousins in prime time. Mm. But you can't even blame it on Kirk. This was 
from end to end, one of the most dominant defensive line performances I've seen in a really long time. Micah Parsons, Demarcus Lawrence, and the rest of the Cowboys crew just obliterated Cousins and got to him many, many times. Just even not getting to the quarterback, they were forcing Cousins to make quick passes under pressure. Like Justin Jefferson only finished with three receptions for 33 yards. Trayvon Diggs played outstanding. And the Cowboys get seven sacks, two forced fumbles, and recovered one of those and only allowed three points against an 8-1 and one Vikings team who had been really rolling on offense. And it's a massive win for the Cowboys. Their defense is for real. And, I mean, they won me my fantasy week. So thank you, <laughs> Dallas. Uh, a combination of the Dallas Cowboys defense and their kicker, Brett Maher, got me 40 fantasy points this week. Maher got 22 on his own, second highest scorer on my team. Unbelievable <laughs> stuff. <laughs> So big loss for the Vikings. Cowboys uh, try to pull, stay in line with the Eagles. They're they're in the mix there for the one seed at least, uh, but we'll need a little bit more fortune of Philly and, and Minnesota dropping some games down the line here. The other afternoon games, Denver blows it again, get elite field goal, and then they are running out the clock and just pass the two-minute warning, and they come out on third and 10, and they call a pass play. And they throw an incomplete pass and only waste seven seconds off the clock. First of all, what are they doing? Rather than run the clock out, that wastes probably 50 seconds. And then you punt and the Raiders only have one minute with no timeouts to get all the way down and kick a game-tying field goal. Instead, they have a, almost two full minutes to get down. They kick the game-tying field goal in overtime. They lose Devontae Adams in coverage. How does that happen? He's the one person you probably want to guard downfield for the Raiders. And, and the Broncos lose, and they, Max, if the Broncos scored 17 points in all of their games this season, I think I read somewhere before coming into today, they would be 7-3. and three. Wow. They were 3-7 and seven coming into today. So just their defense has been phenomenal, and their offense has been trash. And once again, they can't get to 17 points which you think like almost every team in the league at this point in the age of pace and space and football could be able to do so. Uh, really embarrassing stuff. It's only the beginning of a scary, scary future ahead. I don't know if they cut. They can't cut Wilson, but do you try and trade him just for pennies at this point? I think they've made too big of an investment and no one's going to want to take him. So it's, it's dreadful, unbelievable to see them lose. And I think they should be selling at this point. It come off season time to just try and reload, move the window a couple of years down the line. All right. Uh, the other last game here, Bengals finally get a win in the division game. They finish out the Pittsburgh Steelers uh, and, and Kenny Pickett just looked like he was struggling out there late game. George Pickens drops a, an easy touchdown late and, and the Steelers fall. And my fantasy MVP for week 11 is Tony Pollard. Of course, with the Cowboys going crazy, he get, ends up with 30 fantasy points. So a big week for him and, and the Cowboys team as a whole. That's so, going to do a football fan game unless you got a final question here. Uh, I, I cut you off when you try and gloss over a loss, but also will interrupt you to let you rest on your laurels a little. You got your Thursday pick. The Tennessee yes. Titans get the win over Green Bay. So we're, I don't, I think we're roughly around 500 on the picks. I, we'll just say that. I'll take it. 
All right. So with that in mind, moving forward tomorrow night, the 49ers versus the Cardinals. Who have you got? In Mexico City. A mm. fun one. So it's going to be high altitude, eh, then? Yep. 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 And, and I don't think that affects either of these teams too much because they're pretty close in proximity and, and pretty low below sea level. I know the 49ers were practicing in Colorado this week to try and uh, resemble some of the altitude they'll be facing in Mexico City, but I still am going with the 49ers in this one. The Cardinals are dysfunctional. You just can't bet on them. Uh, Kyler Murray, not sure we're going to be playing. Some people might actually prefer if the if Colt McCoy starts just with the way that uh, the team seems to rally underneath him, but 49ers have more talent on paper and uh, Christian McCaffrey, I think will have a big game against this Cardinals team. So I am going San Francisco tomorrow night. There was a beautiful uh, Grey Cup score at four nothing for the Argonauts at one point, <laughs> yes, uh, but it's back to seven ten now. So very standard seven and three numbers. I don't think we need to get into that much, other than acknowledging that it's going on. Yeah, I was I was gonna lead the show with it being the most important event of the season, but uh, yeah, totally forgot. Just like the rest of my life, oh, forgetting. Hey, Toronto's got it to thirteen ten now. So there you go. Oh, big tutty from the 18-yard line. There you go. Yeah, uh, Canadian football. The, the game I watched more of than the Grey Cup was the Western Mustangs semifinal against Laval yesterday, which they lost, unfortunately. Oh, And I that thought... sucks because they were going to be hosting the Vanier this year. Mm, yeah, and they were crushing it, eh? Like through the U-sports season. Yeah, a shocking loss. They uh, offense couldn't come through. All right, that's enough for our football fan cave here. And uh, we'll slide along here into basketball storylines. Max, I don't know if you saw this saga uh, between Giannis, Philly fans, Philly staff, and then Montrez Harrell. I saw the flagrant Embiid had on Giannis, but not uh, this other stuff. So Giannis goes 4 of 15 from the free throw line in the game. Most free throws he's ever missed in a game. Afterwards wants to stick around, shoot some free throws late in the night, practice on it. Now, in most situations, star player stays after a game. We laud it, we applaud it, right? You let him do his thing. Employees were rushing Giannis and trying to get him out of there. Didn't look good. Context comes in that there was some sort of VIP event for season ticket holders for them to be able to take a picture and shoot on the court after the game. As well, they did have to do a quick changeover because there was a uh, game tomorrow night or tonight, I guess, for Philly with the with the changeover, and they had to do the retro court because they were doing the retro jerseys, City Edition jerseys. All of that makes sense as to why they're trying to get Giannis out of there, but I'm not sure if that was communicated because Giannis trying to take free throws. The staff are working on the backboards, bringing the net down, putting the ladder in the way, and what we see is Giannis stroll up and shove a ladder out of the way of the net. It falls down, loud noise there. Philly fans who are still waiting around in attendance, of course, absolutely give it to him. It's a brief loss of composure for a guy who's pretty beloved in the league. And I was surprised to see that from Giannis um, and a little bit disappointed. I mean, everyone's going to have a bad moment. And I think for the most part, people are letting it slide. But I was, I was, you, you saw the frustration sign through and it wasn't a good look for him but also not a great look. I don't think there was enough communication from both sides in that situation. And then Montrez Harrell comes out 
and he's trying to work out on the court, which doesn't make sense because obviously the, the staff are trying to do the changeover, but I guess they'll let their home guy do it. And Giannis is shooting the free throws. Harold sees all of the stuff happen, t- rebounds Giannis's free throw and just takes the ball <laughs> and walks the <laughs> other way and then starts doing his workout. <laughs> And so Giannis doesn't have a ball. Yeah, and he's mad, and they're jawing at each other, and Thanasis is out there for some reason talking to Harold, and Harold's, like, saying, oh, come fight me, and, yeah, just a weird blow-up. I tend to side with Giannis because, like, frankly, I just like him more than everyone else involved in this situation, and I don't know if I'm on the right side of things, but I think overall just better communication there. And you can make the argument, like I know in the Raptors arena, there's like a private court that exists in Scotiabank that you can go to before and after if you're a player. Doubt that exists in Philly, but if there is one, kind of just direct them there and this whole problem gets solved. <laughs> yeah, communication key. And I think MB just a sponge for hate, Trid, that... Uh... Like, I completely missed this. Um, he just, transferred it with the elbow. Yeah. He gave it to Giannis. <laughs> well, he took it right back the neck with the game against the Jazz. Yeah. The yeah, well, the 30, Jazz are the best team in the league, bro. <laughs> or it wasn't the Jazz. It was the Timberwolves, my mistake. Oh, yeah. But uh, yeah. 32 points on six made field goals. <sighs> the free throw merchant strikes again. All right. This story I absolutely loved, and I hope you saw the highlights, Max. No. I... Okay. Uh, the other side of the rather than free throw merchant, someone who could never hit his free throws. This is like proof of how great some of the players in the NBA are. Dwight Chamberlain, I mean Howard, goes over to Taiwan and in his first game drops 38, 25, and 9. <laughs> <laughs> and was in the post was catching lobs off of inbounds passes, flushing it over dudes, knocking down threes, and the crowd going ballistic. Like, I want to go to one of these games. It looked so electric and so awesome that Dwight Howard, it's like the truly the meme where whenever someone's playing bad in the league, they Photoshop them in the Shanghai Sharks jersey <laughs> and say that they'd, like, they'd be Kobe Bryant of the China League. It's actually happened. Dwight Howard puts up an absurd stat line, and I can't wait to see the more highlights that come out of here just dunking on like 5'10 Asian dudes. <laughs> I did see like a story from his Instagram of him trying like chicken balls or something. <laughs> like or like some sort of like testicle or something. And he was just like having a blast out at the street market in oh, Taiwan. He's um, just, it, he's a guy who's always thrived in an environment where there's no pressure. So you imagine yeah. he's just loving life right now. And he probably got paid a ton of money too. It's kind of yeah. sweet. And like, if he ever wants to go back to the NBA, which I think he does, like, this is what you do. Mm-hmm. It. You stay warm, you stay committed, you show you've still got game. Uh, I was talking with a classmate about how, like, Dennis Smith Jr., I think, like, said to his agent, like, I don't want to play Fantastic. anywhere else. Yeah. Like, like if I'm not in the NBA, I don't want to be playing. And whereas Dwight, like, there is an on and off switch for the market for bigs. And who knows? Um, I also think about that uh, quote from Brian Scalabrini after he, like, completely nephewed a guy in a pickup game and said, I'm closer to LeBron than you will ever be closer to me. Yes, I have seen that video. <laughs> yeah. And, and 
that's a great point about Dennis Smith Jr. He, it's an awesome turnaround for him uh, that he kind of fell out of the league after being a lottery pick and, and is establishing a role for himself in Charlotte. All right. All that Dwight stuff aside, I just I can't wait to watch more of it. We'll, uh, we'll throw it over to Tennis Talk now, Max. I know you've got an update on the ATP finals here. That's right. And what it really does, at the end of the day, feel like a feel-good moment, Novak Djokovic wins his sixth ATP final championship in Turin, tying Roger Federer for the most ever wins at that event and becoming the oldest player to ever do it by a good five years. Uh, he hadn't won it since 2015, losing his last two finals appearances to Murray in 2016 and uh, Zverev in 2018. Uh, he had a tough-ish outing against Taylor Fritz, had to go to the tiebreak in both sets to get there. His opponent, Rudd, uh, got through Rublev much more handily, admittedly not Rublev's best tennis. But going in, looking at each of their last matches, you weren't sure. Though on Djokovic's side, he had never lost a set to Rudd in the three matches they had played. And in the end, that it was more of the same. Like, Rudd had dangerous player in his own right it just seems like Djokovic had all the tools um the serve of Rudd fantastic I don't think it was much below his usual level just Djokovic is gonna get more first serves in than almost anybody else and when you put those second serves in he's gonna make you pay uh, the forehand was really Rudd's biggest weapon that just looked dismantled. Uh, it, it just didn't seem to trouble Novak the way it troubles almost everyone else. And the backhand that Rudd has made so much progress and improvement on throughout the year that's been much commented um, still kind of looked like the backhand of old against Novak. He picked it apart mercilessly at the right times. Um, but Rudd did play well. In the first, his very first service game, uh, Djokovic had two break points chances uh, and kind of reminiscent of the other week in Paris. He had a second serve return that he put out and then Rudd got into it. He hadn't put a single first serve in up to that 15-40 score, uh, missed that first serve. But then when Djokovic missed the second serve return, it's like, gave Rudd another chance, a second life. He made the most of it uh, and had first serves to hold there. Managed to get uh, back and forth pretty quick. I don't think Rudd got to the 30 mark on Djokovic's service games more than four times throughout that the match. And two of those were in the later stages. This first set especially was just lightning. For Novak, I... He wasn't able to consistently challenge every game. Rudd had a lot of easy holds, great service games too, but he found his moments. When he was up 4-3, he was able to generate another break point. After being down 30-love, uh, he played some just classic forehand points by him. Uh, and when you're up 30-love, you go down, and then you find yourself tied at 30-30. The tension rises. Uh, Rudd makes a bit of a silly play at the net because he was also so focused on staying on his forehand when he could and staying off his backhand. Um, but he takes a shot that you make in your sleep on your backhand and gets the point on his forehand and muffs it. Djokovic wasn't able to return the serve again, so Rudd held on there. Seemed like we were going to the tie break at 6-5 Djokovic. 
Um, but he made his move. Uh, an error from Rudd early, and then Novak just paints the line, like the classic, whips it forehand wide, short wide, then really hard wide, and then a ridiculous one that he keeps on his forehand, keeps on the line to get the break point. And this is what impressed me most, though. Uh, so he'd had three break chances at this point, and he kind of miffed two of the three of them, where he had a serve to play, and he tried to do too much with it, and he was out of the chance before it had even gone underway. So you saw him slow it down, make sure he got the serve in play, and then just bring the pace down, find his moments, slowly build up the point, and uh, work towards the error from Rudd, attack the backhand when the angle was there, um, but know that he can hang with him on the forehands if the backhand isn't there and not force it. And sure enough, in those longer air, that long rally, found an error from Rudd, first set, Novak. Um, quicker into the second set, uh, at 2-1 for Djokovic, uh, Rudd has an early error, Djokovic makes another great shot, then another error for Rudd, and Novak has two break points again, and he goes right back to what worked late in that first set, makes sure he gets the serve in, takes his time with the rally, increases the pressure, backhand, backhand, backhand until he's got Rudd out wide, and eventually draws the error. Wasn't sure where it was going to go from there. Uh, Rudd, it, it was kind of reminiscent of that match against Nadal at the French Open where he was showing a lot of respect for his opponent and, and he had his moments but just seemed unable to threaten with his own breaks and like the respect had him a little outclassed. Uh, the fighting's like just a lot more applauding points than you typically see how when guys are in that competitive mindset. But he did manage to make one move uh, in the game-deciding match, or the match-deciding game. And he got it to 30-30, and then he took a page out of Novak's book. Like, you're, I'm not going to try and do too much with it. Uh, I'm just going to make sure I put the ball in, put the ball deep, uh, put tough shape on it, and I'm going to make you play tennis and beat me mano a mano. And it was a 36 shot rally uh the tension was kind of non-stop uh those were some of the best backhands rudd had of the match just managing to keep them deep in the corner and uh with enough pace that novak couldn't attack it relentlessly and then as soon as the angle was there he switched to his forehand and not get locked in too much um, but novak managed to be simply better um, kept attacking the shots dictating the rally but also playing with the right level of caution and 36 shots in, he was able to set up his uh, winner. Uh, next point, he gets an ace for the championship. And like I said at the start, it felt good to, in a year where certain people thought he wouldn't be able to attend, let alone win Grand Slams, where as of April, it, it was a kind of a question of, is this guy going to be ranked at the end of the year? Uh, he's able to really recuperate, have some success on the clay season, have Wimbledon, and uh, had one of the best winning percentages on the tour, if not the best. Unfortunate Alcaraz not here. That that's a bit of an asterisk on the tournament, but taking care of your body throughout the season, an important part of success in tennis. Uh, so obviously really looking forward to the Australian. 
which it sounds like Novak will be playing at from what I gathered of the commentators talking. Um, but with all, I am biased. The way I feel about how Kyrie Irving and other NBA players, other NFL athletes have handled their anti-vax stats or stance and the way Novak has is different. Um, but especially once we got into the second half of the year and he wasn't able to play at the U.S. Open, I found it really disappointing and upsetting. And just as a fan of the guy with so much adversity, probably, as the commentators said, uh, the lowest lows he's had in any professional season of his career, it felt really good to see him cap it off with a win in his family. So happy for Novak. I was very close to my hot take now back in January where I said no Grand Slams. He does get one, and he gets the uh, the extra kind of fifth Grand Slam on top. And you know what? Sometimes you're wrong, and uh, it doesn't happen often for me, but I'll take this one. And uh, yeah, congrats, Novak, on a great season. <laughs> All right, we've got uh, six minutes to get through this. I don't yeah. know if you want to start with baseball since you got cut off last time. Well, not really much to talk about in, in the hockey scene here. Um, the Leafs cannot win an overtime game. They uh, lose once again to the Devils on a brutal giveaway. That happened Thursday night after our podcast. And then, of course, following up on that, the Edmonton Oilers play an overtime game and I mean the Leafs have Matthews out there but it's not working with the other line mates they're putting with him and it feels like with Edmonton you can put anyone out there with McDavid and he'll just do it himself a really special goal in that overtime uh deking around a couple of golden knights and then roofing it with the backhand on the break there uh fantastic stuff Max the Leafs are if you add their overtime losses to their losses, they are 10-9 and nine on the season, record-wise. They have the fifth most points in the NHL. So I don't, yeah. I, don't, I don't know what that says about parity of the league or just the Leafs are losing the right way in overtime, but it, 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 there's so much panic happening. And obviously, come playoffs, there's some very real issues for the Leafs, but somehow they continue to roll near the top of the standings. And obviously, it's very condensed there, but... A weird, weird start to the NHL season. I'm reading this uh, light novel right now about a character who gets transported to a fantasy world. He lives his first life as a blacksmith, and then the demon overlord uh, invades the world, kills everyone, and he finds himself reincarnated. So this time he decides to live as a mercenary, um, goes on quests, makes friends, becomes a much greater warrior than he was, and then... 20 years later, the demon lord invades and kills them all. He does the exact same thing again, except nails all the mistakes, gets everything right. The demon lord comes, kills him again. He goes through it 999 times, uh, finding out midway through that the demon lord is just going to keep reincarnating him. And you're reading from the perspective of the thousandth life. And he is just so flat. All his replies are, yes, I know this. Yes and just monotonous doesn't engage with people and has no emotions and that sort of reminds me how i feel at this part of the leaf season what a fantastic uh comparison there that's sounds like an interesting read yeah um i'll i need to start using the show notes i'll link it okay okay yeah the yeah. leafs one in four in overtime so far and it 
those overtime points are glass half empty, glass half full. Is yep. it, hey, you got one point out of it and uh, those add up or like, look at all those lost points. I, I'd like to see this team get to around 500 because as you said, yep. this is a team that should excel in the three on three with the speed and talent that they have. Um, so I think we, if we know this, they know this, it's something they're going to work on and uh, we'll see some plays drawn up. We'll see taking care of the puck uh, better, but it, it, with the roster that we have, it is a bit embarrassing. Yeah. I'd say you take it for now, just of course, with the, the schedule they had, they've had a pretty condensed schedule. They've played more games than a lot of teams. So it should open up a little bit as we move along, which ideally means some more rest and some better for performances night to night. You would hope. You would hope. All right. I'm going to get cut off again, but the Toronto Blue Jays trade away beloved fan favorite Teoscar Hernandez to the Seattle Mariners for Swanson and a prospect Mako. Uh, it's really, really disappointing. And I don't like the trade from the perspective of the Blue Jays being in the win-now window. But with that being said, from a cold and calculating perspective, as we tend to take on this podcast, it makes sense. Teoscar Hernandez, in the last year of his deal, you're not going to be able to pay him the money he's going to want. And you have to get Bo and Vladdy signed in that kind of same year, same stretch of things and they've already spent a ton of money on the free agents right kevin gosman uh hunjin ryu george springer of course and so there's only so much money you can deal out to these guys obviously no salary cap in baseball but it is expensive to pay for all these players so you move him you get bullpen help which is something they desperately need and it opens up a little bit of cap flexibility to go out and get another mid-level guy they've been so successful with with the semians with the uh, uh, Matt Chapman's this year, that maybe there's another guy out there that they can find in in the free agent market. So I'm unhappy about it because I want them to go for it. And I almost think one more year of Teoscar is worth it if you're going to lose him for nothing. But I understand it. And this time next year, Blue Jays are playing late into October. And fans are going to forget all about Teoscar Hernandez. Will be weird seeing him in Seattle, though, along with Robbie Ray. It's That's such a good. bittersweet thing when your home players are doing so well and they're coming up on the end of their contract. Yep, yep. Hopefully we don't have to deal with that too much longer in Toronto. We've got some great young players locked up for a long time. And that's going to do it for this one. Thanks, everyone, so much for listening here as we're about to get cut off. Max, I'll leave it up to you. Generation of Danger, Tala, Plugged the Singles, Album Lives Up to the Hype, Sports Next Door, signing out.